Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 18. It's a rather long passage, so I will just ask you to follow along on the board as I read it to you from the Word of God. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18, it says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and contribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus seeing that he had became sad, he said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Our Father, we come before you now bowing our hearts low before this text of scripture this morning. We ask you to humble us. We ask you to create more joy in us. We ask you to convict us. We ask you to challenge us. Lord, we ask you to do your work among us this morning through this text. So many years ago that your son incarnate on the earth as he encountered this young man who is like all of us, whose heart is filled with self-righteousness and idolatry. And to see that he turned away when his sin and idolatry was exposed. A man who thought he had it all and saw that he must lose all in order to become your child. Father, I pray this morning that you will give us hearts to obey, ears to hear, eyes to see, and a will and an affection to obey you and worship you. Give us a higher view of who you are than what we had when we came. And Father, I pray above all things that you would speak to us this morning. For your servants' ears are listening. May you move me aside and do your work in Calvary Baptist Church. It is in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, and I would invite you to go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke 18. I didn't say a lot about it last week, but uh, last Mother's Day, which was last week, was actually my ninth Mother's Day with you. 
Um, eight years ago today, or eight years ago last week, I preached my first sermon with you, and I am now uh, been here eight full years and moving into my ninth year. I think I'm doing the math there, right? So um, it has been a joy and a privilege to be your pastor. And you may recall, um, some of you have better memories than others, but uh, you may recall that when I first came, my first sermon was obviously Mother's Day. But after that, I did a series, uh, just four sermons. Don't you miss those series? <laughs> but I did, uh, I did a series, four sermons on the biblical foundations for ministry or the foundations of biblical ministry. And uh, for each one, I gave a week to consider it, just to help you to see these are the foundations by which I plan to minister among you, and I want to lead you to have these foundations, not only in the church, but also in your own lives. These are thoroughly biblical. They are uh, things that uh, I, think, I don't think anyone could really argue with. And they are also things that in this story, in Jesus's interaction with this rich young ruler, we're seeing all four of them at play. And we see that these are the foundations not only for biblical ministry, we can say that because they were the foundations of Jesus's ministry when he was here. And if we're going to minister, if we're going to, if we're going to be the church, we might as well try to be like Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so four foundations of biblical ministries. Now we have, you say, well, Randy, what does this fit in with everything else we've been talking about? Because we have been talking about a lot about purpose. We've been talking about a lot about goals and aims. And as we're slowly coming back from COVID, uh, it, it was a good time to kind of do a reset and evaluate uh, what is it that we're doing just simply because we've always done it versus what are we doing? How can we streamline our ministry and be more informed by the New Testament that we can, what are some new things we can do? What are some old things we can keep? What are some things that need some change? And we've been talking about all of that. But before we do it all, we must have our theology of ministry down. We're not just doing it because it's the new fads. We're not just doing it because it's the old fads. We're doing it because we want to be informed by what we believe in the word of God. The way I said it is that our theology must determine our methodology, not the other way around. That's why you have so many Baptist churches today that look like other denominations because they chose methodology indiscriminately. And it, it, it is inevitable that when you start using methodology, if you are not intentional, your methodology will shape your theology. It will. That is, that is inescapable. So we need to make sure that we're being uh, intentional and that our theology is shaping everything we do and not the other way around. Amen? Amen. You agree with that? Okay. So, so that's what we're all talking about. But now we're gonna ask ourselves the questions, what are the values behind everything we do? What are the guiding principles that as we, as we seek to glorify God, as we seek our three aims, that you would know the faith, live the faith, and what? Okay, let's try it again. That you would know the faith, live the faith, and what? 
share the faith, right. And as we are pursuing those aims, faith, hope, and love, and, and, uh, and, and, helping you to mature in those three cardinal summarizing Christian characteristics, what are the values that we want to hold as we do that? What are, what are the guiding principles that inform everything we do? Because without these, it is so easy to move away from scriptural priorities. It is so easy to move away from scriptural priorities. What, what is gonna make Calvary Baptist Church distinct from everyone else? I mean, let's face it. If you just wanna sing three songs and listen to a sermon, you can go to any church in town. All of them do that. If you wanna, you can, you can even have your pick, whatever your taste is, you can go to it. But what is it that we're doing that's gonna make us stand out? What is it that we, what are the values that we hold to that make us distinct? And that's the question we're gonna ask. These four biblical foundations, and I'm gonna go ahead and give them to you. Number one, a high view of God. Number two, a high view of scripture. Number three, an accurate view of humanity. And number four, an accurate view of the purpose of the church. Those are the four principles the guide, think of them like a bar stool. I know I'm a Baptist, so I, you know, but we do have a bar stool up here. So think of it as one of these bar stools, this one here, because I guess there is only one, that has four legs. And think of the top of it as the ministry. And what is it that's holding up the ministry? It is those four legs, those four foundations that keep it grounded on the floor. You take away any one of those legs, and that bar stool is gonna become is gonna become shaky. It's going, to become, it's going to become unreliable. And so we need to have all four in place that holds up the ministry and holds up those who sit on the ministry and, who, and who, have, who are in the ministry. And these are the four principles that in action we see as Jesus deals and Jesus responds to this rich young ruler. Now, why do we call him the rich young ruler? Because in all your synoptic gospels, we find this story, this, this, this interaction that takes place. And in Matthew, we are told that he is a young man, Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. Here, he is referred to as a ruler and all three of the gospels tell us that he was extremely rich. So we call him the rich young ruler. That's kind of a conglomerate of all three stories. But to be honest with you, other than that, we don't know much about him. If he was a ruler, that tells us that perhaps he was a synagogue ruler or perhaps he was maybe some kind of civil magistrate. The truth is we just simply don't know. There's a real interesting uh, early church tradition that says that this was a young Levite by the name of Joseph who would actually later sell his property and lay it at the apostles' feet and the apostles would rename him Barnabas. That's a very early church tradition, but all of these are conjecture. We don't have any definite proof of any of them. All we know is that he was young, he was wealthy, and he was a ruler. That's all we got. And that he also came to Jesus seeking something. 
He came to Jesus. The ruler questioned him in verse 18, saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Boy, what a setup. Wouldn't you love people to just randomly walk to you on the street and say, hey, let me ask you something, Brother Stephan. How do I get to heaven? Wouldn't that be just the greatest evangelistic encounter ever? I mean, that's the kind of things we drool over, right? I mean, that's kind of what we want. That's what we're looking for. That's, that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're praying for every day. What would likely be your response? How many of us would immediately go to the Roman road, right? Uh, maybe you would do the faith evangelism outline. Any you guys ever heard of that one? That was real popular kind of back in the ni- late 90s, early 2000s. Evangelism explosion. How many of you would go into that? Just immediately, right? My favorite gospel presentation is Two Ways to Live. It's, uh, it was written in, in, in Europe. And I think that they're, they've been ministering a long time to a culture that our culture is becoming. So I think we can learn from our brothers and sisters over there. And, uh, and that's the one that I like. And boy, me personally, I would, I would just immediately go into Two Ways to Live, right? The point is, is that most of us, most of us would immediately just start sharing whatever gospel outline we've memorized. How many of you would say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Right? But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, I dare say that if Jesus was in an evangelism class and this was his final project in just about every seminary on earth, he would probably get an F. He probably would. I mean, he doesn't immediately say, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't immediately go to the Roman road. He, he doesn't do any of those things that we're taught to do today. Why doesn't he do that? Why does he respond in such a strange way? And I think it's because we're gonna see these four foundational principles at work. I think that's why. And so these four biblical foundations, and to be honest with you, we're not gonna get through all four of them today. It's not gonna be a four-week sermon. It's just gonna be a two-week sermon. So we're just gonna look at the first two today. So number one, and by the way, and for the sake of uh, intellectual honesty, I will tell you that the wording of these points are not original with me. I first came across them in a class for essential qualities for a biblical minister. And then kind of find out, I found it in a book written by John MacArthur called The Master's Plan for the Church, a book I commend to all of you. And so, uh, wonderful book, and, uh, and I find them to be very biblical, uh, very, very scripturally informed, and so I've, I've used their wording. Uh, however, I'm, I'm developing it in my own way. So, uh, so, but the wording of the points is not original, so I always want to be honest there. So for number one, let's just look. What we see here at play, the first foundation, is, that, is a high view of God. A high view of God. And this is something that since I've been here that I pray that you are all familiar with. That we want to have a high view of God at Calvary Baptist Church. We want everything we do to be informed by a high view of God. All biblical ministry begins with a high view of God. Nine years ago, when I preached the sermon on a high view of God, I went to Isaiah chapter six because what an amazing picture of God that Isaiah got. 
Isaiah chapter six, a high view of God. And it's the first thing that Jesus challenges this young ruler with here. It's the first thing he challenges. He looks at him in verse 19 and he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Because no one is good but God alone. The man had addressed Jesus as good teacher. And ironically, the majority view of people today of who Jesus was, was that he was a good teacher. Exactly what this man says. And usually by that, what they mean is, is that they have good morals, is that they teach love for neighbor, love for self, social justice, Whatever it is, whatever their definition of good is, they will impart in that and they will twist Jesus' words to say that he was a good teacher because he agrees with me. That's essentially what they do. And, by, and beloved, if you do not have a high view of God, you will do the same thing. You will take the scriptures, you will take church, and you will try to mold it in such a way that it agrees with you or it agrees with me. Pastors are not immune to this. In fact, it's more dangerous for us because we're in the position to actually do it. And so pray for me that I don't do that. Pray for me that I keep a high view of God and not a high view of Randy Scott. Amen? Cultists and heretics love this verse because it seems to, on the surface, it seems like Jesus is denying his own goodness and he's giving a, a degree of separation. But I don't think that's really what's happening here. I think what's happening is that Jesus is challenging this young man's impression and assertion of God that if you recognize that only God is good, then why on earth are you calling me good? His whole notion of God is wrong. This man thought that he recognized Christ as a good teacher, but the truth is, unless Christ is God himself, he cannot be good. He cannot be good. C.S. Lewis, the famous uh, apologist of, uh, of last century over in England, he said this macabre, I, I love how the English talk, this macabre of 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 Jesus being a good teacher is rubbish because Jesus claimed to be God. He was either right or he was wrong. And if he was wrong, he either knew he was wrong, which makes him a liar, or he didn't know he was wrong, which makes him a lunatic. Either way, he cannot be good. So this macabre of saying that he is a good teacher but not God is lunacy. He cannot be good if it's not true, he's either a liar or a lunatic, but if it is true, he is Lord. And we owe him our allegiance. It's essentially the same question that he asked the disciples later, who do you say that I am? The question of all the ages. And it seems like on the surface that Jesus is, is kind of starting a theological argument, but in fact, he is answering his question. How do I come into the kingdom of God? We first have to recognize who God is. If you want to be in his kingdom, you got to know who he is. Amen? 
His holiness, his character, the fact that God is absolutely good and absolutely holy and there is no shadow of evil. There is no shadow of darkness in him. Why is a high view of God so important? Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. It's, in, it's on the board. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And the next four verses go through the implications one by one of that truth. That if you say you are walking in the light, but walking in darkness, you are not in fellowship with God. If you say, I have no sin, then you are deceived. If you say that I have not sinned, you're making God out to be a liar. Everything starts with a high view of God. And you will not know yourself until you know a high view of God. You will be self-deceived, self-righteous, self-motivated, all of that. In fact, if you don't have a high view of God, you can't help but to have a high view of yourself. That's it. You either have a high view of yourself or you'll have a high view of God, one or the other, and all the implications that flows from that. All biblical ministry starts with a high view of God. By the way, it goes even deeper than that. You see, the the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's not one I often quote, but how many of you have that? have that translation, a couple of you. I love, they caught on to something here that I think is absolutely correct that no other translation, including the revision to the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is now the CSB, uh, it kind of backed away from it. But, But it includes something here that I think is absolutely correct. When Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good but one, God. And that's actually the way it's worded in the original. And why is that so significant? Because what do you think Jesus is referring to when he says no one is good but one? What do you think he's calling back to? Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are not talking about some generic idea of God. We are not talking about some civic idea of God. He is the only one who is God. God is the only God of all the universe. And he alone is good. No generic idea of God will do. Because all the gods of the cultures are just like that culture. All the gods of human being are shaped just like their own hearts. Only the God of the Bible is the true God of all the universe and only he is good. No civic, civil idea, generic idea of God will do. No unbiblical God, no pagan God will do. Only the God of the Bible. Only the God of heaven. Only Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth and only he is good. So we must have a high view of God. And number two, I told you I wouldn't get through all four. Number two, we have a high view of God then inevitably we must have a high view of scripture. We must have a high view of scripture. This man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then in verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. And then he quotes them in case, you know, he doesn't. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. I mean, just go down through the list. There they are. You know the commands. How many of us can say the Ten Commandments from memory? I assure you, this guy could. He knew them in ways and out ways. He knew them backwards and forwards. He probably knew how many letters there were that, that, that spelt out the commands. He knew exactly where to find them. He knew exactly where they came from. He knew the history behind them. He knew all the different spans of interpretation there were in the rabbinic tradition. This is a man who knew the commandments. And you might think that Jesus is just being pedantic by, by quoting these commandments to him, treating him like a child. Why does Jesus go to the commandments? And we'll talk about more of the man's reaction to them next week. But let's just stop and ask ourselves that question. Why does Jesus quote the commandments? Why does he do that? I mean, again, this is not what you would often get in your evangelism 101 in Bible college and seminary. The commandments, what are you talking about? That's the law. We're under grace now. And yet Jesus quotes the commandments. That's significant. In fact, it's significant in a couple of ways. And we see that because the scriptures are inspired. And let me tell you where I'm getting this from. Do you realize how often in the Bible when Jesus is asked a question, he goes to the scriptures over and over again. Whenever he is confronted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and all of them, and he corrects their interpretation of the scriptures. They're, they're all walking around with bad interpretations and he corrects them. That's why they're not fair, you see. And that's why they're sad, you see. Okay, so, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so, I just totally lost my place. <laughs> he, would all, he, would even in, he would even correct their misinterpretations and he does this all the time. Think about when Jesus was tempted by Satan. Satan approaches Jesus and says, has God said? And what does Jesus do? Over and over and over again, he quotes the scriptures, right? You remember when he came across the two men on the road to Emmaus? And they're saying, have you not heard about what's happened? And Jesus says, don't you know that this was necessary? And then what does he do? Beginning with Moses, he explained the scriptures to them. And then here, when this man comes up and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does he do? He quotes the scriptures. We've already said Jesus is God. We believe that, right? We've already said Jesus is God, which means Jesus could have said anything here. And anything he said, by virtue of who he is, any and everything he would have said would have been the word of God, right? And what does he do? He quotes the scriptures. Beloved, that speaks volumes of significance to me. 
that if Jesus on his ministry has a high view of scripture so much to the point to where anything he said would have been the word of God, and yet over and over and over again, he goes back to interpreting the scriptures correctly for his people. If Jesus himself did that in his ministry, how much more must we do it? We need a high view of scriptures that, that the word of God is the very word of God. Jesus had a high view of the scriptures. He, he saw no reason to overturn the scriptures. The fact of the matter is that he could have said anything, but over and over and over again, he could have blown a, a puff of air on this young man and he could have caused his eyes to open and to know the truth. In fact, he does that with the apostles at the end of, uh, at the, end of the gospel of John. He could have snapped his fingers and everybody's eyes would be open. He could have done anything he wanted to and it would have been the work of God and the word of God. But over and over and over again, he goes back to the scriptures because the scriptures are the very word of God. They are everything we need, which really gets into the next point and that is this, that the scriptures are sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient Jesus could have done anything, but he saw that the scriptures were enough. In fact, for most of us, just turn page over to Luke chapter 16, one or two pages over. And for lack of time, I won't go into everything here, but you may recognize this as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You may remember that the rich man was, had everything in life, but Lazarus was dirt poor. And when we say dirt poor, we mean dirt, dirt poor. And yet he was a believer in the word. He was a believer in, in Christ, believer in God. He reached out in faith. And now later on in Abraham's bosom is what it's called. Hades being in torment, the rich man lifts up his eyes and sees Abraham from afar off and Lazarus at his side, asks for mercy. You know the story. But what's significant then is that in verse 27, the man says, and he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from them from the dead, they will repent. And Jesus in the mouth of Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. That is enough. And if that won't do it, nothing will. You know, so many have pointed out the irony that Jesus actually names a character in the parable here that it's Lazarus. And later on, Jesus is gonna raise a man by the name of Lazarus from the dead and not only did they did not believe, not only did they seek to kill Jesus, they actually started plotting to kill Lazarus too. And people point out the irony, but you know what I see is the bigger irony here is that the very one who is telling this parable, the very one who says, neither will they believe, even if someone rises from the dead, the very one who speaks these words is going to rise from the dead and still they do not believe. 
You have the word of God. That is enough. You don't need signs. You don't need wonders. You don't need tongues. You don't need this or that. You don't need stage productions. You don't need lighting. You don't need fog machines. When we were all worshiping at home, I looked into buying a a home fog machine for each one of you so that way you can, you know, worship at your house while we... uh... You don't need all of that. The scriptures are enough. Today, a lot of people make the big deal that Jesus points only to the second table of the commandments, especially with the inroads. And beloved, I'm just gonna tell you, four or five of you have asked me to address this, especially with the inroads of the social justice movement uh, into the Christianity, critical race theory, intersectionality, and all these buzzwords we're hearing the inroads that these things are making into the church. A lot of people today make it a big deal that Jesus quotes the second half of the commandments that all have to deal with loving your neighbor. They make a big deal out of that. Jesus says, if, after all, if you wanna go to heaven, you must love your neighbor, right? So obviously we need critical race theory to teach us how to do that. That's what they say. First, why didn't Jesus name all the commandments? Because, the, because Jesus has already dealt with his view of God. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. God, Jesus has already covered the first commandments. He doesn't need to quote them again. He already challenged the man's assertion of God by referring to Jesus as good. So he doesn't need, he doesn't need to quote the first five commands there, first four commands there. But secondly... The question we have to ask is, is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus saying that you must love your neighbor perfectly if you wanna have a shot at inheriting the kingdom of God? Is that what Jesus is saying? Are you ready? Yes. That is exactly what he's saying. Jesus points the man to the commandments to show him that absolutely nothing but perfect and absolutely righteous obedience and it must be perfectly kept in order for this man to have a shot at the kingdom of heaven. You must love your neighbor perfectly, absolutely, consistently, and always. You must have absolute perfect righteousness and if you don't, then you are doomed to damnation. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's the standard that scripture gives and Jesus does not back down from the scriptures. He does not avoid the hard parts. He does not avoid the commands that only perfect, absolute obedience to God's character and God's law can merit the kingdom of heaven. That is exactly what Jesus is saying. And that's why at the very first, he says that only God is good. Because when you apply that standard to each and every one of us, beloved, there's not a single person in this room that is good. There's not a single one of us who have ever loved our neighbor absolutely perfectly that have loved our God with absolute righteousness. Not a single one of us in this room has done it. But that's exactly what Jesus is telling you is required. 
and we can't do it. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's not telling us that we must bow down to the modern prophets of social justice. What is he doing? He's telling us that we need to recognize our sin. And that's why we have a high view of scripture because the scriptures point out our sin in order to point us to our savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who had absolute perfect righteousness. He is the one who kept God's law perfectly. He is the one who is absolutely consistent with God's character. And then he went on the cross and died for us for all the times that we did not. For all the ways that we are unlike God, Jesus died on the cross so that we may come to, to Christ. Not, we may come to the Father, not based on any righteousness we think we have, but based upon the merits of God himself. God himself provided the very righteousness that you need to inherit the kingdom of God. And the Bible, the scripture is the only book that contains that message. Every other religion says, do, do, do. Jesus Christ says, done. And done for you. Beloved, when Brian and Liz are baptized here in a moment, they're not doing that to earn eternal life. They're doing that as a picture of the one who earned eternal life for them. That's what we're about. And that's why we have a high view of the scriptures because the scriptures are the only message that contain that message. So beloved, if we're gonna have a biblical foundation of ministry, we must have a high view of the scriptures. We teach it, we sing it, we pray it, we, we talk about it. The scriptures are the lifeblood of our church. And everything we do must be in obedience to it. And everything we're doing that's not in obedience to it, we need to correct. It's the lifeblood. And that's true in your life as well. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you know your life is out of sync with God, you know your life is out of sync with the perfect righteousness that God requires. And that's the first step. He's convicting you. And he's pointing out his sin, your sin to you just like he tried to do with this young man. When Jesus said, only God is good, this rich young ruler puffed out his chest, straightened his robe, and he said, so am I. All these I've kept from my youth. God is good and I am too. And he walked away from Christ Extremely sad. Beloved, when this morning, when you hear the truth that only God is good, will you puff out your chest in righteous arrogance and say, I am too? Or will you bow your knees to the floor in absolute humility and cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? The only righteousness that can help me is yours. Will you save me? Because Jesus Christ died for my sins. And he died that I would have life in you. I want the kingdom of God. Will you pray that prayer this morning? Or will you continue to puff out your chest and say, I'm good enough?
Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for the sign and ordinance that we are about to witness. A perfect picture given by your own means and your own grace that we must be identified with Christ, that he must know us. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done this? Have we not done that? And you will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I, have, I never knew you. Lord, may that not be heard by anyone in this church, anyone under the sound of my voice. But if there is one here this morning who does not know Christ as their savior, I pray you would convict them. May, may the words spoken and the, and the gospel seen in a moment and the testimony of baptism, may it stir their affections to you. May it cause them to come to you. May it cause them to, to stir up a new love for who you are and a loathing of their own sin that we may repent and we may believe in the gospel. We thank you for these words of truth this morning. We thank you for everything you're doing in our church and we ask you to please do more as we strive to be more faithful. It is in your name we pray, amen.